James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. I love the church family here. I am so thankful that you love the Lord and that you give faithfully and financially and generously and obediently. I'm thankful for that. And if I were one of those, I suppose, average preachers, this would definitely be a paragraph I would skip over. (laughs) And I had to study it all week long. So convicting. And yet, what a wonderful grace that God has given to me to study, to show myself approved to God as a workman rightly handling the Word of God I must preach on the prophetic thunder from this paragraph. Judgment comes upon money lovers. So you have your Bible open to James 5. I want you to follow with me as I read the opening paragraph, verses 1 to 6. This is the word from the Lord to me and you this afternoon. James 5. Come now, you rich. Weep. And howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and the rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, The pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, it cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts for a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Imagine a story of an angel coming to a very, very wealthy and money-hungry businessman. And the angel comes to the businessman and he says, I will grant you one request. Only one request. You can ask anything you want and it'll be given, but you only get one request. Well, the man doesn't have to think long and hard because the businessman said, I want a copy of the stock market page one year from now in the future. Share with me what it's going to look like. So it was given to him. And as he's reading and studying the numbers of the future exchange and all the markets, and he's gloating over how much he would make in that upcoming year. Oh, he was so excited. He was thrilled. He was gloating. He was so amazed with gladness. And then something happened. His eye glanced to the other side of the page. And he saw his name, and he saw his picture. And it was in the obituary column. And he thought, huh, I'm going to make a lot of money, but I'm also going to die. Suddenly, the new wealth that he was going to make became insignificant. 
in light of his own soon death. The Bible teaches that money-hungry, money-loving, money-pursuing people who live in self-indulgent luxury, the Bible teaches that they will die and they will go to hell and they will realize truth too late, that God's judgment comes on all money lovers. Now, I want to be clear in the introduction, and I'm going to say it throughout the message, but let me be crystal clear. The problem is not with money. The problem is not with wealth. The problem is the heart that craves wealth and the heart that loves wealth and the heart that needs more wealth. Now, the Bible teaches... And you and I know that wealth can be a great blessing. It can be a great blessing. But, but with wealth can come a lot of trouble. There's a lot of danger that can come with wealth, like envy, injustice, oppression, theft, murder, abuse, misuse, deceit. And here's what God teaches in the Bible, that how you handle your money reveals your heart. Jesus teaches it in Matthew chapter 6. God teaches it in the book of Psalms and Proverbs. How you handle your money reveals your heart. Or maybe I could word that differently. How you view money and how you view material possessions and what you do with wealth indicates what you worship. What you worship. Isn't it the case that there are many who might profess the name of Jesus Christ, but they continue to live opulent, indulgent, materialistic lifestyles, indicating, regardless of what they might profess, but their lifestyle indicates that they serve wealth, not God. Jesus said it in Matthew 6, 24. No one can worship God and money. What would God say about this? What would God want you and me to hear from his word? Well, we come to the paragraph in James chapter 5, where I'm just going to use the word of most commentaries. This is the harshest language in all the book of James. It's like James is putting on the prophetic mantle, as it were. And he's going to preach in the form of an Old Testament prophet. And he's going to preach a judgment oracle. And he's going to say, judgment is coming. Three times in our text. Verse 1, verse 3, verse 5. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Why? The misuse of riches and the unjust treatment of the poor, it's going to bring God's wrath. It's going to bring God's wrath. Now, maybe you're hearing, you're hearing this by way of introduction and you're scratching your head thinking, wait a minute, this is Pastor James writing to a church, writing to believers. Why in the world do we need to hear this? What's the purpose of this paragraph here? I think three reasons. Number one, James is a good pastor. It's evangelistic. He knows that there are unconverted money lovers who are hanging around the midst of God's people. 
So he's writing to the church. He's been speaking to the church the whole letter. But yet here he's giving an evangelistic call to money lovers who are unbelievers, but they're hanging around the church. A second reason for this paragraph is it encourages Christians. It encourages Christians that God is going to judge the unjust. He's going to judge the wicked. He's going to judge the oppressors. He's going to judge the worldly self-indulgent. But, but I think there's a third reason, and this is very practical for us as well. The third reason that James gives this is to warn believers that we would not fall into these sins. It's to warn us. So, so we need to hear this. We need to pay attention. We need to open our ears to the truth. If, if I could tell you just very briefly, this passage is a wake-up call to money lovers. It's like James is saying judgment is surely coming and the, and the money that people love and the money that people pursue can't save you from the wrath of God. That's the paragraph. That's, that's the whole paragraph that we're going to look at today. Now, look at how Pastor James begins in verse 1. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you, you rich. Weep and howl. Interesting, that word howl, you might have in your translation groan. You might have wail. It's a word that speaks of intense, uncontrollable groaning. Because here are rich people who are going to be judged and they're going to be condemned, listen carefully, not because they had riches, but because of their misuse of their riches. Or maybe I could put it differently. They're not going to be judged because they have riches. They're going to be judged because their riches have them. And James is going to stand on the shoulders of Old Testament prophets, and he is going to condemn the rich for their misuse of money and for their oppressing of the poor. Now, still by way of introduction, if you want to turn, I'm going to do a few sampling verses of Old Testament prophets, because I want you to see James is really not doing anything unique. He's doing what the Old Testament prophets did. And I want to begin in Isaiah 3. Because in Isaiah chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, or really verses 13 to 15, here's what we read. The Lord arises to contend, and the Lord stands to judge the people. Isaiah three fourteen. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and princes of the people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. In Isaiah chapter 10. We read in verses 1 and 2, Isaiah says, Woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights so that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. Now what will you do in the day of punishment and in the day of devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave? your wealth. Jeremiah chapter 5, 
in very clear language. Jeremiah 5, beginning in verse 27. Jeremiah says, like a cage full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They are fat. They are sleek. They excel in deeds of wickedness. They don't plead the case, the cause of the orphan, that they might prosper. They don't defend the rights of the poor. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord? The minor prophet book of Amos. Amos chapter 4, verse 1. The prophet Amos is speaking a bold message to the very wealthy people of northern Israel. Amos 4 verse 1, Hear this word, you fat cows of Bashan, you who are on the mountains of Samaria. You oppress the poor. You crush the needy. You say to your husbands, bring now so that we may have strong drink. Later in Amos chapter 8, Amos 8, and we read in verse 4, Hear this, you who trample the needy, to do away with the humble of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over, so that we might sell grain? And when will the Sabbath be over, that we might open the wheat market, to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger, and to cheat with dishonest scales, so as to buy the helpless for money, and the needy for a pair of sandals, that we might sell their refuse of the wheat? The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget any of their deeds. Because of this, will not the land quake and everyone who dwells in it mourn? Well then, just one more, Micah chapter 2. The whole book of Micah is such a strong message to injustice in the land of Israel. Micah chapter 2 verse 1, woe to those who scheme iniquity. They work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it. For it is in their power in their hands. They covet fields and they seize them and houses and they take them away. And they rob a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am planning against this family a calamity. Now, I read all of that from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Micah. Why? Because what James is going to do in James chapter 5, he's standing on the shoulders of the Old Testament prophets, and he's going to point the finger to the ungodly wealthy, and he's going to say, judgment is coming on you. It's bold. It's uncomfortable. It's hard. We might even say it sounds harsh. But James 5 says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. He says in verse 1, The miseries are coming upon you, meaning the calamities of judgment are coming upon you. You worldly rich, James is saying, the calamities, the miseries of divine judgment are coming upon the worldly wicked. So wail, weep, howl, wake up. Judgment is coming. That's verse 1. Verse 1 is the pronouncement. Weep, howl, wail, miseries of judgment are coming upon the ungodly rich. Well, now in verses 2 to 6, James is going to give the progression 
he's going to give the progression, or maybe we might call it the catalog of sins. It's the downward spiral of trusting in money that will surely lead to judgment. And I want to give you this downward spiral. This is the outline for the rest of our time together. What is the downward spiral of trusting in money that will lead to judgment? Very simple outline. Number one, it begins with hoarding. Then number two, it leads to cheating. Then number three, it leads to self-indulgence. And then number four, it leads to murder. Hoarding, cheating, self-indulgence, murder. This will explain why we see what we do in the world that we're living in. This will explain for us the downward spiral of trusting in money. This is the catalog of sin. This is the progression of sin for those who are money hungry and money desiring and money loving. Where does it all begin? Number one, with hoarding. If you're taking notes, this is the first part of the downward spiral that James talks about in verses two and three. It's the sin of hoarding. See it there in your Bible? Look at verse 2. Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, and your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. So it's a common temptation. It's a widespread sin in our day, and quite honestly, it was quite convicting for me to study it and think about it this week. It's the sin of hoarding. What's that? It's the ongoing collecting. It's the accumulating of stuff, primarily in the context here, wealth, usually money, but it could be anything. Now, before we even dig into the passage here and bring it to light, what ought we to do with our money? Let me just sort of look at it positively here for just a minute with you. What should you do with your money? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 6, number one, you got to use it for God's glory. You got to use it for God's glory, storing up treasures in heaven. Second, you need to provide for your family, 1 Timothy 5 8. You need to provide for your family. Third, according to 2 Corinthians 9, you need to use your money to advance God's kingdom, to advance God's kingdom. Number four, you need to use your money to win the lost. Luke chapter 16, verse 9. It's an amazing verse that Jesus says you can use your money to win the lost. Number five, you ought to use your money to care for the needy. 1 John 3 and really the early church, Acts chapter 2. They were giving, they were selling, they were distributing to those in need. Caring for the needy. Another way that you... Can use your money as number six to support those in gospel ministry. First Corinthians nine to give and support those who are in ministry. But the point of this is to not hoard money because hoarding wealth is foolish because it's quickly going to fly away. Listen to Proverbs 23, verse 4 and 5. Don't weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it, because when you set your eyes on your money, it's gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. So James is, is warning of that. 
He's warning James 5 verses 2 and 3 of the sin of hoarding wealth. Now, there are three primary means of wealth in that culture that James is going to bring out. First is the food. Food. Your food is going to corrupt. It's going to rot. Second, garments. Your garments, your clothes are going to be moth-eaten. And then third, your money, your gold and silver is going to rust. It's going to corrode. It is going to rust. More, 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 more. I just need more food, more treasures, more crops, more garments, more money, more, more, more. All that people have accumulated will be useless if you trust in it. And like Isaiah taught so much, it'll end up turning on you and it'll destroy you. All of this reminds me of that account. I know we read it last week, but it's in Luke 12 of the rich man. Luke 12, 16, a rich man had land that was very productive and he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Uh, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I'm going to store my grain and my goods. Is that bad? No. Here's where the problem comes. But I'm going to say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who's going to own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself, and he is not rich toward God. You remember the story in Luke chapter 16, right, of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man had all that this world could offer him, and he died and went to hell. Look at Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man. He habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. He joyously lived in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was at the gate covered with sores. He longed to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the table. And we read when the rich man died, he fell into hell and he was in agony in the flame. But Abraham said to him, child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus the bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. In his life, he received many good things, many good things, many good things. What's James saying? James is saying, don't hoard your stuff. I I remember reading about Corrie ten Boom. Corrie ten Boom was giving good wisdom when she said, I've learned that I I need to hold everything loosely in my hands. Because when I grip it tightly, it hurts When my loving father has to pry my fingers loose and take my possessions from me. A believer who wants to grow spiritually can't be caught up in the accumulation of wealth for himself. He can't do it. Jesus has very clear, crystal clear words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 19. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't do it. It's simple. 
Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But what should I do? Store up treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You say, okay, I get that. I want to store up treasures in heaven. I'll tell you how more later in the sermon. But what should our attitude be? If we're not to hoard... Well, what ought we to do? We ought to thank God the giver for every good gift. We ought to work hard to provide and share and give to others. We ought to give for the cause of the gospel and in so doing, storing up treasures in heaven. And Paul says, don't hope in your money, but be generous and rich in sharing. First Timothy chapter six. But again, more on that a little later. What is, what is James saying? He's preaching evangelistically to non-believers that are in the midst of the true church. And he is saying, come you rich, weep and howl your miseries. The judgment is coming upon you. Why? Verses 2 and 3, you hoard. Verse 2, your riches rot, meaning your food Your treasures, your crops have rotted, they're corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver is rusted. It's all going to be a witness against you. It's going to consume your flesh like fire. Look at verse 3. This is a judgment oracle, verse 3. It is in the last days that you've stored up your treasure, meaning judgment is coming. Because number one, you've hoarded. Number two, if you're taking notes, what is the second downward spiral, the second mark of the downward spiral, it's this, cheating, cheating. And it's found in verse four. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you, it cries out against you and their outcry who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord. So far from the rich people showing justice, now they're the ones exploiting the poor and they're taking advantage of them and they're not paying the workers. They're actually stealing from the workers and cheating them. Let me see if I can sort of paint the the picture and describe what's going on for you just kind of in simple terms. So the harvest has come to the end. First century, the harvest has come to the end. The fields are empty because everything's been harvested. The barns of the rich are filled with all the bounties of the earth. And all the laborers, all the day laborers, I mean, they're tired. They're weary. They've worked hard in the fields. And the workers are day laborers who agreed for a daily wage with their master. They expected to be paid, kind of like Matthew 20. There was a man who went out and he hired people in the third hour and sixth hour and the eleventh hour and they all agreed for a certain wage. They expected to be paid. And Leviticus 19 verse 13 says, don't hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Don't hold back the wages. Deuteronomy 24 Verse 14, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of the aliens who's living in your towns. You shall give him the wages on his day before the sun sets because he's poor and he has set his heart on it so that he will not cry out against you to the Lord and it will be sin for you. 
What's James saying? In verse 4, if you look at it in your Bible here, notice the word behold. Listen up. You've been cheating, James is saying. Now, there's one of three things that's happened. One of three things. Either, number one, they've paid, but after much delay. Or maybe, number two, they paid less than they agreed upon. Or third, they're just refusing to pay at all. And whatever the case is, in verse 4, the pay of the workers, they mowed the fields, they harvested the fields. It has been withheld by you, James says. Their cries are going up. Can't you hear it? Can't you hear it? Maybe a cry of a worker is saying, I thought he would pay me. My wife and I depend on this. My children depend on this. Maybe there's an allusion to Luke 10, verse 7. The worker deserves his wages. And let's not overlook verse 4. The outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears. He doesn't just say of God. It's a very unique phrase. The Lord of Sabaoth. Well, that's a direct quote from the burning bush narrative in Exodus chapter 3. When God said, I am aware of the affliction of my people in bondage in Egypt, and I have given heed to their cries, and I am aware of their sufferings. What a God. God knows the pain. He knows the trouble. He knows the bad treatment. He hears the cries of those who are being unjustly treated. God says, I hear their cries. But the title for God Lord of Sabaoth is a way of saying he is the God of all of the armies in heaven. Don't mess with this God. He's the Almighty One. He's the All Powerful One. He's the one that can deliver you out of bondage in Egypt. He can bring you through the Red Sea. He can bring you to the Promised Land. This is the Lord of hosts. This is the Lord Almighty. He hears the cries of those who have been cheated. You said you'd pay me, and you didn't. My wife depends upon it. I depend upon it. Our children depend upon it. We have been cheated by the rich. And James, in a very Old Testament prophet-like judgment oracle, says, God hears their cries. Real quick, before we move on. I think this is one of the many reasons why Christians shouldn't gamble, why Christians shouldn't play the lottery. We know that the gambling industry exploits the poor. They they might see it as their hope of improving their life situation, I suppose. But when somebody wins, whose money are they getting? It's not the government's money, it's the poor. Cheating, exploiting the poor, gambling, and lottery should not have a part of the Christian's life. Furthermore, I think it's why Christians should be good employers. 
generous employers to those who work for you. Generous, paying, providing in a timely way. And maybe an additional application, Christians, we should be good tippers at a restaurant. The worker is worthy of his wages. Don't don't cheat. Don't cheat others. Don't exploit the poor. Give fairly what is due. Okay, so James is is saying in chapter 5, You rich, weep and howl, judgment is coming. Why? In this downward spiral, in this catalog of sins, it all begins with hoarding. Number one, the accumulation of stuff and wealth. Number two, then it leads to cheating. But that will inevitably lead to number three, self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. So if, if someone is not paying the day laborer, if he's not paying him the wage that he should be paid, the rich, James says, are spending it on their own self-extravagances. Now, Pastor James, according to verse 5 right here in our Bible, in prophetic passion is going to scathe the rich who do this. I mean, he is putting on that prophetic robe and he is using language, figures, images, denunciations from the Hebrew prophets. Look at verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth. You've led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. This is interesting. This leads us to Ezekiel chapter 16. It's one of the most bold, blunt chapters in the Bible regarding sin. The sin of Israel and the sin of Judah. Ezekiel chapter 16, Ezekiel 16 verse 49. This is speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah. Behold, this is the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and the needy. They had pride, they had plenty of food, they had comfortable security, but they didn't support the poor and the needy. What's the point? They were overfed and unconcerned. Back to James 5, James says, You've lived luxuriously on the earth. Can can I just ask a couple of heart-probing questions at this point? Are you a self-indulgent person? What does your credit card statement reveal about how or who you spend your money on? What would other people say about how you live your life and how you spend your money? Do do you love living in comfort, luxury, a cushy life? Or, to use the Hebrew prophet's image, gorging yourself while ignoring others. 
Again, the issue is not having money. That's not what James is after here. He's not after having money. He's after what you do with your money. And there's three main verbals in verse 5 that are just so in our face that we've got to hear. Verse 5, you have lived luxuriously on the earth. Interesting verb. Literally in the Greek, you have lived in pleasure. Soft. The idea is soft. Meaning you're so wealthy, you just live the soft, cushy life. It's extravagant luxury, loose living. It's comfortable, often at the expense of others. It's kind of like the rich man in Luke chapter 16 who who habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. And then the Bible says in the words of Jesus, he lived in luxury every day. Same word. Just Just a rich guy who just lived luxuriously on the earth living for himself. The second verb in verse five is not only living luxuriously on the earth, but second, you've led a life of wanton pleasure. If you have the ESV or the NIV, you have a a life of self-indulgence. I like the New Living Translation here. You've satisfied your every desire. That's good. You've satisfied your every desire. That's a good rendition of the original. Why? Because it's wasteful living. It's extravagant living. Even sexually immoral associations with this word. It's, it's just full of pleasure. It's full of loose living. It's full of just me satisfying my every desire. And, and the place to go for this, by way of illustration, is the prodigal. Remember that in Luke chapter 15, the man goes to his dad. He says, dad, I want you dead. Give me the money. Give me the inheritance. So the dad gives him the money. The the boy foolishly takes the money. He packs up his stuff. He goes to a faraway land. He spends it all on foolish living. Wild living is the idea. Immoral living. The older brother reveals it was on prostitutes. James is saying to the rich in the midst of the true believers, he's saying, you've lived luxuriously on the earth. You've led a life of wanton pleasure. And here's the third verb in verse five. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. Oh, man. This is a quote from Jeremiah chapter 12, verse three. You are so fat Gorging yourself full with your self-pleasures, what you're doing is you're preparing yourself for the day of slaughter. It's like the prophet is saying, you're fattening yourself. You're just like a domestic animal, gorging yourself without knowing your destined end. You're just like cattle being, being fattened for the day of slaughter. And so that's what the rich are doing. They're indulging, they're gorging in luxury, self-indulgence for the day of judgment. I take a huge warning from that. It's easy for us to care for ourselves. It's easy for us to be self-indulgent. Solomon, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, could not be any clearer. Because in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon says, I did it. I tried it. 
I can't read all of it, but Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 to 10, essentially, he says, I'm going to test myself with pleasure. So I had wine. I had all the houses for myself. I had vineyards. I made gardens. I made parks. I made fruit trees. I had water ponds for myself. I had slaves. I had lots of flocks, lots of herds, more than anybody in Jerusalem. I collected more silver and gold than anyone else. I even had many concubines. Solomon said, I tried it all. I became great, Solomon said. I increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse him. But then I considered all my activities, and I realized its vanity, striving after the wind. Living life in self-indulgence is vanity without God. It's vanity A man who's been discipling me for a number of years, I read his journals, and I view it as an older mentor to me, a younger mentor, as Joseph Aileen. I came across this this week. He gave alms almost daily. When trade was low in England, he would often give beyond his ability to assist godly tradesmen so that they could recover their business. One of the biographers said of Aileen that he appeared to have been so generous to the very last limit of possibility. Even his wife wrote his own biography about him, and she said he would constantly be giving money away. By the way, I think there's an important application point. If you have a need, if you have a need financially, share it with an elder Come to a care group leader. Come to a pastor. Come to others in the flock. Tell us, because there's people who would love to help meet that need. But we can't meet it if we don't know that there's a need that exists. Someone who could have lived luxuriously on the earth was John Wesley. He made lots of money. In fact, historians even say that in one year, due to royalties for his books, he made about equivalent of $170,000. That's a pretty high income for a traveling street preacher. But he gave, he gave, he gave. And the story goes, when John Wesley died, all the money he had left was some coins in his pocket. He had just given it away, given it away. He he didn't want to live in self-indulgence. He gave it away. So James is saying in chapter 5, to the unbelieving rich, weep and howl, judgment is coming. Why? Here's the progression. You're hoarding and you're cheating and you're self-indulgent. And that leads to one more. And this is the last one that James brings up. The fourth point of this downward spiral is that of murder. Murder. It's, it's the next logical step in the downward spiral of greed of money lovers. Verse 6, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. In verse 6, you've condemned is the Greek word you've taken to court. You've taken him to court. You've passed sentence upon him. You've condemned him in a judicial court setting. You've used your money to take the poor to court. Actually, James already said that earlier in James 2 and in verse 6. 
Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court, James said? Sure. They condemn you and they've put you to death. They've murdered. What are the the unbelieving rich doing? What are the filthy rich doing? What are the money-loving rich doing? They're using the courts to judicially murder some of the poor, either directly or indirectly. I mean, how heartless, how cold, how selfish are these money-loving sinners in verse 6? You've condemned them legally. You've put them to death. And he doesn't oppose you. Probably because he's a humble Christian who's trusting the Lord even while being unjustly treated. You know, it is true The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, Paul says, right? And and then he said, some by longing for it. That's the key word in the whole section. Some by longing for it, by craving more money, have wandered from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many griefs. Just even before that, 1 Timothy chapter 6 Verse 9, those who determine to get rich fall into temptation and a snare which plunge men into ruin and destruction. So, that's a pretty bold paragraph. Hear it again. This is an Old Testament-like judgment oracle on unbelieving rich people who are hanging around the congregation of believers. Notice, there's no hope. There's no call to repent. There's merely a declaration of judgment three times. These are unbelievers, and they're headed for hell. And James is saying, a warning, a warning, a warning. Now, I want to reflect on this with you for a minute, just sort of transitioning to a close. Ask yourself some of these questions, and I've got a number of them here. Just ponder this and reflect on it with me. Where do you hoard stuff in your life? Would people you know and love view you as a hoarder? I mean, do do I gather and accumulate more than I give away? Or maybe a related question is, am I guilty of accumulating too much wealth? Or maybe let's ask these questions in a different way. Are you currently defrauding someone in any way? Do, Do you owe anyone anything? Is there financial deception in your life? Are there unkept promises, unpaid payments, increased debt, unwise spending? Are you late on a payment? Make it right. Make it right. Or or learning from what James said to the rich here, do do you live lavishly in self-indulgence? Where, a good question for us, where, where can you give more away? 
so as to not pamper a cushy lifestyle, but give more and more and more for gospel advancement. I want to remind you, I was reading it in my quiet time this week and it fit so well. Believers are not to be marked by self-indulgence. We are to be marked by self-denial. Or another application that we could draw out of this passage, have you victimized someone because of a power advantage that maybe you possess? In other words, do you take advantage of someone else for your own self-advantage in any way? And just some of those questions can be so helpful for us and convicting for us as well. Let me remind you of what James 1 said. As you reflect and consider these things, hear and obey. Hear and be a doer of the word. If the Spirit of God is convicting you right now, there's something in your mind, there's something in your heart, you've heard the word taught, you've heard the word read, you've heard the word expounded, and the Lord, by his gracious Spirit, has brought something to your mind. Be humble, take action obediently, and follow the Lord supremely, and he'll honor that. He'll honor that. Because as we reflect on these things, money reveals where our heart is. So how do we handle our master's money? Can we just all remember the money that we have isn't my money, it's God's. So I sometimes think about this. Is God going to say to me, well done? Or is he going to say, what in the world have you done? <laughs> I don't, we don't want to hoard. We don't want to cheat. We don't want to be self-indulgent. We certainly don't want to murder or be practicing injustice. Now, with all of that, that's a lot of negative. That's a lot of judgment oracle. That's a lot of here's what you've done wrong. If you're taking notes, jot these down. I have some protections. Here are financial pastoral protections to help you. I'm not a financial advisor. There is one here who can help you. But I want to give you pastoral protections from the word that can be a guide. All this doesn't come from me. Randy Alcorn is so helpful in this. Number one, church family, God owns everything. Just mark it down and remember it. He owns everything, including you and your money. So think of it like this. I'm God's money manager. He gives the money to you on loan. You're to be faithful in how you use his money for his glory. Number two, your heart will go where you send your money. That's what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6. Your heart will go or follow where you put your money. So somebody says, man, I wish I was more eternally minded. Well, then give it away. Give your money away because where you put your money, your heart's going to follow. Number three, giving is the best and the ultimate antidote to materialism and the love of money. Giving, giving, giving. It is the best and the ultimate antidote to materialism and the love of money. 
Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, command those who are rich to not set their hope on money, but to be generous and ready to share. Number three. Oh, no, no, no. Number four. Listen carefully to this. God gives you more money not to raise your standard of living, but to raise your standard of giving. God gives you more money, not just to raise your standard of living, no, but to raise your standard of giving. Number five, just a pastoral piece of advice that you could consider. Number five, learn to resist spending money on things that you want but don't need. Self-denial. Learn to resist spending on things that you want but really don't need. Number six, this is very practical, and, and yet, but yet it's also so helpful. Number six, set up a budget and abide by it. Track what you spend. Make sure that you spend less than you earn. Simple but very essential. Number seven, God commands all of us to prioritize the regular financial giving to the church. He commands us to prioritize the regular financial giving to the church so as to further gospel advancement. Praise God for that. Number eight, prayerfully think about how you can be creative in this. Give money with the hopes of winning the lost. Maybe it's buying Bibles on Amazon. Buy 20 of them. Go to your neighbors. Give them to your neighbors. Maybe it's going out and buying this or buying that to those who are in need and saying, hey, I'm just thinking about you. Want to give you a gift with a gospel tract and a handwritten letter or whatever it could be. Be creative. Be thoughtful. Give money with the hopes of winning the lost. Jesus talks about that in Luke 16, verse 9. And then finally, number nine, just church family, so important for us. This world is not your home. Heaven is. And one of the things that is so convicting for me is I often spend my money, God's money, and live my life trying to make this world my home. And it's not. But this world is not my home, heaven is. Sam Storms put it so well when he said, our giving is just a reflex of God's giving. God gives, he gives, he gives. We ought to give in response to that. You say, Jeff, I hear what you're saying. And I hear the judgment oracle here. I mean, I see James in his prophetic mantle. Exposing the worldly rich, telling them judgment is coming, telling them the downward spiral of their misuse of money. But I saved the best for last. I have to show you Christ. And I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 as we close. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. God never commands the New Testament church to give the tithe, 10%. He doesn't say, well, you make such and such a money, just write a check for 10%, throw it in the offering, and you've done your due. 
He doesn't say that. The New Testament doesn't say that at all to the church. Here's what the New Testament does say. Look at Calvary. And gaze upon your Savior. And look at what he did for you and how much he gave for you. Look at it. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's begin in verse 7. And I need to be done after this. I see the time here. I usually ignore clocks, but now I need to draw this to a close. Verse 7, just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and all earnestness and the love that we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work. What's the work in the context? It's the work of giving, the work of generous financial giving. Yes, you, you excel in all the ministries of the church, good, but be sure that you're excelling in the work of giving. Verse Eight. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love. Paul's not going to tell them how much to give. He says, I want you to prove the sincerity of your love. Well, how much do I give? What should I do? Look at the next verse. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, oh, he was in glory. He had all the splendor and majesty of the king, the second person of the Trinity, forever receiving worship. He was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. What does that mean? He gave everything up. He gave it all. He gave it all for you. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is not a prosperity gospel verse. This is somebody who's awed at the reality that God has given every spiritual gift in the heavenly places in Christ to believers. What a Savior who gave everything for us. He left heaven and he came to earth, not just to earth, but he took the wrath of God. And and, and the eternities of hell, of God's furious indignation for our sin, he took it. That's the poverty. He had nothing. So that through this work for you, you become rich. Every blessing in the heavenly. So what's the message? Here's the Savior who gave everything for you. He gave it all for you. So now Paul would say, give and live fully for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power and the piercing and convicting and comforting nature of the Word of God. Where we sin, O Lord, we ask you to forgive us. Where we have lived hoarding our money and lived in self-indulgence and where we have cheated, forgive us. Oh, forgive us, O Lord. Help us to change by the enabling power and the sufficient grace of the Spirit. Thank you for your word. Such clear 
and bold truth. We thank you and praise you. Thank you for Christ who gave everything for us. We behold him. We love him. We worship him. We adore him. In Jesus' name, amen.